today I have the pleasure of being joined by um, Saun uh, Assistant Professor Saunak Bose. Um, how are you doing today, Saunak? Good morning, thanks. I'm doing very well and I'm very happy to be in this uh, very fancy studio. <laughs> yeah, it feels fancy to me too. <laughs> Um, so you do um, research using supercomputers to study the formation of galaxies, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it's um, galaxies and I suppose more broadly just understanding how the universe that we see around us has uh, come to form over billions of years and that's a very complex problem. So we put uh, many, many very powerful computers uh, to our use for that. So uh, that's roughly what my research is about. So is there like any reason in particular you're drawn to this kind of research? Like why, um, why galaxy formation? You know? um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, when you're young and you kind of think about what are things in uh, sort of the world or in your existence, I guess, that, that excite you, then these sort of questions about what our origins are and where we come from and, you know, what the... Um, basis for life and all these kinds of things um, are tend to be sort of the questions that you know anyone's kind of interested in and um, it it turns out that um, astronomy and, and cosmology which is broadly the subject in which all of this falls under is quite is quite a broad topic which actually taps into a lot of these questions but beyond just delving into these questions in a philosophical point of view you can actually write down scientific theories and, and mathematical equations that help express these questions and, and, and their solutions in some coherent ways. So I think it's a very exciting subject in that sense because you can make these theoretical calculations and most importantly you can actually then take telescopes and then observe the real universe and, and see whether these are correct and make predictions and improve your theories that way. So it's a really exciting subject because you really tap into the most fundamental questions underlying human existence in some level in a way that can actually be tested. So I can't think of a subject that's more exciting mm -hmm. than that. Yeah, I think especially when you can like have like sort of equations to really pin stuff down, it makes it feel a lot more tangible. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's just a you know, math student in me talking. Yeah, no, but I mean, I think that's right because, you know, I mean, to sort of understand anything, we basically need to come up with the words or, or the language to express ourselves or to be able to query the the laws of nature and, and mathematics turns out to be one way to do that and we over you know centuries have developed some of our methods to you know describe say the laws of gravity and the laws of thermodynamics and and, and so on which are we think these fundamental laws that dictate how stuff in our universe forms and we can basically use that to our advantage so, so really it is a very powerful way to sort of try and tackle these questions mm. whenever we have to like rely on like sort of more qualitative uh ways of describing things i can't help but feel it feels like a bit of a cop out you know yeah and um i, th I think you know at, at some level there there is a there is a place for, for both of these things because I mean, if you if you really want to talk about, you know, the origins of the universe right from the very first moment that it came into existence and, um, you know, one way to describe this is this idea of the so-called Big Bang model. Um, I think even at that regime, there are our mathematics, no, despite how sophisticated it is, it reaches a sort of finite level of usability and predictability and, and there is some physics around the very origins of our cosmos that we we don't really have the full grasp of and 
I think there are many qualitative arguments that are made that, that, that become useful and hopefully one day we'll be able to quantify these. So I think there's there's always room to sort of have some kind of complementary approach between the sort of rigorous hardcore stuff maybe <laughs> that, that we're able to write down in equations and, and the stuff that we kind of just think about and hypothesize and are eventually then able to test. Yeah, I think it's important as well because the sort of quantitative stuff doesn't really appeal to quite a lot of people. You know, it seems like very kind of um, complicated and like mm -hmm. a mess. People don't really want to get into that. But if you can describe more qualitatively, like, yeah, we think that you know, there was a huge period of inflation at the start yeah. in the early period of the universe, that's a lot more, I guess, accessible to Absolutely. a wider range of people. Absolutely. And I think that's where astronomy is a really unique subject because I mean, just the just the images that come from space mm, and, yeah. and from cosmos and stuff—they're so inspiring, right? And it's sort of so dramatic to see these objects, which we think were formed, you know, a few hundred million years after the birth of the cosmos, and the images that we are seeing taken by, you know, these new space telescopes like James Webb and the Hubble Space Telescope and so on, are essentially snapshots of galaxies as they looked like tens of billions of years ago. Um, and they have these sort of glorious, beautiful structures that just beyond the aesthetic quality actually tells you a lot about the physical processes that led to the galaxy looking the way it does. I think having this sort of visual comparison as well is a really nice way to sort of, I think, be inspired and in awe of what the universe gives us. Um, so, you know, I think even for me, who who deals with the numerics and the computing and stuff like that, having that sort of visual element of being able to see the the science and, and the physics before your eyes is, is the most amazing thing. Mm. I think it's quite crazy to think how like kids growing up these days, like we see pictures of galaxies and planets and all that from Hubble and all these other telescopes. Yeah. And that kind of gives you, informs you of like, oh, this is what I guess the universe looks like. But right. going back hundreds, like thousands of years ago, people just didn't have that. Right. No, exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, even our sort of knowledge of there being other galaxies and places like, say, the Milky Way, where where our planet is is found. I mean, that knowledge doesn't go all that far back. It's it's really just a twentieth century, early twentieth century thing, and um, you know, ability to slowly be able to measure distances to different celestial objects that gave rise to the understanding that uh, these other so-called uh, extra-galactic nebulae, as people used to call them back in the day, because nebulae were basically these, you know, surfaces of stars that had been blown out and, you know, created these very spectacular-looking images, like the famous Pillars of Creation image of, of that Hubble has taken and James Webb has taken and, and so on. So, so people knew of those, but didn't know that there are other island universes, which was the term that was used... Um, uh, to describe these extragalactic uh, nebulae even existed beyond our own. And, and that's, you know, going back about 100, 200 years. So it's, just, it's not all that far back. Yeah, I think it really sort of changes the way we view, I guess, our place in the universe. Because like before that, it seems like the natural assumption people make is that, I guess, um, Earth and the Milky Way and all that is really special. And like, not that it isn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, I guess, when you know that there are countless more galaxies and planets then i guess in a way it becomes maybe less special possibly is... yeah i mean i i think there is this um there's a danger of people falling into this sort of 
peril of despair <laughs> uh, at some level when you sort of think about the the magnitude of what exists in, in the cosmos beyond just our, ourselves because you know there's um you know we think many planetary systems like like our solar system in any given galaxy um there's many stars in a galaxy and there are many galaxies in the universe if you just keep adding those up then you know we become just one tiny speck in a very very vast uh, number of possible places where life or things like life could could exist but um but i think you know you have to kind of detach yourself from that a little bit otherwise you just become like well you know what's the point of any <laughs> of this really like if if we are just so insignificant because you know after all in our day-to-day -day lives it is uh, really essentially everything that exists within the little you know oblate spheroid of our earth that that ultimately dictates what our entire existence is, is about at some level so i think you know it isn't incorrect to maybe sometimes feel overawed by it but but ultimately you know um what matters most to us is, is probably just the stuff that is happening in our day-to-day -day lives in in and around ourselves yeah it's just like there's loads of different kind of like magnitude scales so much you can look at things right mm -hmm. like i remember reading something that was saying about how if you look at individual cells really zoomed in they'll tell you like nothing about like the overall kind of biological system we might be part of. Mm -hmm. But in that cell, it's like a whole kind of self-contained world almost. Right, right. And it's right. not until you zoom out that you see more. How everything sort of yeah. fits in, like the little cogs of a wheel making the machine run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I guess, can you tell me a bit more about your research now? Like, when I hear, like, someone's an astronomer, astronomer the yeah. first thing I think of is, oh, you know, looking into telescopes all day and all that. Is that accurate? Right. Um, it is possibly accurate for a certain branch of astronomy. So I think even the sort of romantic view that, that people have of, you know, having these really powerful telescopes that you peer through in, in the middle of, you know, the the deep of night in, in some desert in, in Chile or something like that, then, you know, I think that particular manifestation of astronomy is is probably less um accurate these days because you know the the biggest telescopes and the most powerful telescopes that are used by uh astronomers are, are mostly kind of robotically controlled and can be remotely controlled and of course you can peer through them and, and see stuff but it's it's very rarely just you know one person and, and their telescope standing in the middle of the desert looking through to see what what comes around um so i actually don't don't do much of that myself so my my research is more on the i suppose the theoretical side of trying to understand understand what it is that we are seeing um, or what observational astronomers see. Um, so specifically my research is in trying to understand um, these two very enigmatic entities in our cosmos, what we call dark matter and dark energy, and how they essentially interact to create the universe as we see it today. Um, and, you know, understanding really what it is that, that they are. Um, and so this the term dark i think is is an interesting one because it in one sense refers to the fact that we don't visually see um what it is this that this dark matter could be you know we think it's a kind of particle probably um but dark in many ways is also just a reference to our lack of knowledge um of of what what these concepts are so we think dark matter is is a type of species of particle that generates most of the gravity in, in the cosmos and 
you know, if in fact had it not been there, then, you know, the distribution of galaxies as we see it today and subsequently the the planets and the life and so on would, would have looked very different because dark matter is ultimately the kind of invisible skeleton and the scaffolding that holds up the visible cosmos. Dark energy, and I think sometimes people get a little bit confused by the distinction between dark matter and dark energy because people possibly think of, you know, the whole E equals MC squared business where energy and, and mass are, are the same thing. But dark energy actually plays a very opposite role to dark matter, where dark matter is what generates gravity and brings things together. Dark energy is instead uh, some additional force in, in our universe, possibly, that actually causes things to go and fly further apart from everything else. So it drives what's known as the accelerated expansion of the universe, the fact that the universe itself is getting larger and larger, but at a faster rate. And that is being created by some kind of new field or some new kind of particle, maybe, who knows, a different kind of force um, opposite to gravity. Uh, and, and dark energy is what that is. So they play two very um, counter roles. Um, but of course, if we can't see and, and touch and, and taste or, or whatever any of this stuff, then how do we actually study it? Well, that's that's what my research is about, really, which is essentially making theoretical models of what we think these could be, and then essentially teaching supercomputers, as, as you talked about right at the beginning, the laws of physics according to what these models uh, suggest they might be, and then essentially creating virtual replicas or virtual copies of the universe on the computer, saying that, okay, if we think this is what the universe started as soon after the Big Bang, we think dark matter and dark energy are these most important entities that behave like this and have these physical laws associated with them. If I were to then evolve this whole system over what we think is the age of the universe around 14 billion years or so, what would our predicted universe look like at the final day today, essentially? And then you have this virtual prediction that you can then basically take and observe exactly like one would do with a telescope, with a powerful telescope, and see what the distribution of galaxies are like, what their properties are, and so on. And then you compare with the real data and see, you know, what it tells you, whether this looks any, any in any way realistic, or there's certain aspects of this model that haven't quite worked out. And, and that's really what my research is about, really, which is making these theoretical predictions and then comparing with the data to try and figure out how we can improve our models more. So are those simulations that you run on these computers, like, actually quite accurate? Because, um, I mean, my computer struggles to run, like, Minecraft, let alone <laughs> universal simulations. Yeah. So how do you go about simulating something as complicated as an entire universe? Yeah, I mean, so so accuracy, I think, um, I think that it's, it, it's unclear as to how exactly one would define what is an accurate uh, universe. I mean, so one way we, we judge this is by saying, okay, we have certain data sets that we have collected and accumulated over several decades of taking telescopes and observing galaxies, such as, for example, counting the number of galaxies that we find of some given brightness or some given mass per, per unit volume of the universe. So we can actually make these measurements through um, telescope surveys and so on. And then we can run our simulations and see, do we actually predict the same distribution as a function of brightness for these galaxies. Um, and then if if it 
works out, then it says, okay, well, this looks reasonable because we're at least able to reproduce the abundances of galaxies as we observe them today. And and if not, then maybe it says, oh, maybe there's something missing in our model, which means that we are predicting too few galaxies or too many galaxies and, and so on and so forth. So there's various, me- you have to choose certain metrics, I think, that you um, use to identify what is accurate and what is not so accurate. Um, but I think what's one of the most remarkable things about this subject um, of computational cosmology, as it's called, um, and in fact, the, the place where I work is called the Institute uh, for Computational Cosmology um, in, in, in the astronomy department. Um, and so what, what's one of the most amazing things about it is that as a subject, it's, 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 it's not all that old. It's, it's you know, something really that has been going on for maybe 50, 60 years, possibly. I mean, even less than that, really, if you think about sophisticated numerical calculations. Um, and in that time, we've actually gone a very long way uh, from having simulations that looked uh, really nothing like what the observed universe looked like to having really sophisticated models that make very detailed predictions of not just the large-scale distribution of galaxies, but even the sort of intricate properties of what we might find inside specific galaxies. And we're now able to do calculations like creating near-exact replicas of what the local group uh, which is essentially the collection of the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy, our, our nearest neighbor, and, and its sort of satellite surrounding galaxies. We, we've recently, in, in Durham, actually done a, a big calculation that is able to reproduce these properties really, really, very accurately. Um, to answer your question about the computers, I mean, I think this is where the supercomputer aspect helps, which is that a supercomputer essentially is, you know, having, you know, tens or maybe in some cases hundreds of thousands of very powerful computers, um, maybe like the laptop you used to run Minecraft mm. possibly, but having 10,000 of those running together to work towards one particular problem. Um, so these are very computationally, um, you know, laborious tasks. Um, and, and certainly I think while you could do small simulations on, on a laptop, um, like the ones you and I might own, some of the biggest problems and the most complex problems, I think you really would need a supercomputer uh, to answer. And, and they tend to be pretty um, good for solving many of the equations that, that come up in, in, in physics and in astronomy and, and so on. Um, and, um, and Durham is actually home to uh, some of the you know, most advanced supercomputers Ooh. that we have, uh, which is um, you know, one of the real benefits of doing this kind of research here, which is that you know, just two two doors down from where I work, you can actually just go into the machine room and you know, see the servers operating oh, with the thousands cool. of disks and stuff like that. So it's it's really, very cool, actually. Uh, maybe I should go play Minecraft on there. <laughs> <laughs> so so you've, got, um, you've got like these powerful supercomputers running these reasonably accurate uh, simulations of the universe. But how do you know, like, kind of what sort of laws of dark matter and dark energy to sort of plug into them? Do you, are you like kind of throwing darts at a dartboard or mm. is there more kind of theory crafting behind it? Um, I, I, I think it's, it's probably, I, I would say that, you know, you don't just go in completely blind. I think right. that would be a slightly thankless, <laughs> possibly fruitless task um, because this whole dark sector could have so much going on in it um, and there could be so much physics that extends beyond the, the normal physics that we are um, sort of used to with ordinary matter, that if you had no sort of basis uh, to go by, then I think 
um, it could be quite an exasperating task. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there are certain aspects of dark matter that, that we know have to be have to be the case. Otherwise, um, uh, well, we would have discovered it in some other way. So, for example, um, we know that gravity has to be a very fundamental aspect of what dark matter is able to do. Um, and Einstein's laws of general relativity and so on basically say that gravity is essentially sourced by, uh, well, not even Einstein, I mean, go back to Newton, and, and Newton's laws said basically the same thing, that, that the laws of gravity or gravity is basically generated by something that has mass um, to it, and so it, it weighs something. Um, and so we we know that it can't be a completely weightless, uh, massless particle because we need to source the gravity appropriately. Um, and then uh, we said, okay, fair. Well, we can then see, you know, how low this mass could be or how high this mass could be. Well, we start with, say, low mass particles first, and it turns out that if you have really, really low mass particles, um, um, such as, you know, things like neutrinos, which people back in, you know, the 70s and 80s thought could potentially be the dark matter because neutrinos also don't interact with light, so they're dark in that sense. Um, well, if the dark matter is that light, then it turns out that it's actually very difficult to form galaxies because galaxies form in regions where there's lots of gravity um, so that all the sort of gas can sink in and cool and form stars and so on. And fast-moving particles like neutrinos, these really light ones, actually end up counteracting the effect of gravity because these particles always kind of want to buzz around and zip around the universe. And so when people did calculations of the first neutrino-based uh, cosmologies, we actually found that the distribution of galaxies looked nothing like um, what was uh, observed in the real universe. So that basically told us that, okay, maybe dark matter needs to have mass, but it can't be something that is too light. And so you can basically use these kinds of rungs to help build up your knowledge base um, and sort of, you know, improve the models further. Then, for example, we know that dark matter can't be something that interacts with ordinary particles um, like um, electrons and, and protons and, and photons and stuff in any very significant way because had that been the case, then, you know, we might not have called it dark matter. We would have just called it something else because it would have been quite easy to detect it. Um, and so this is kind of how we say that, okay, it can't have these properties, so let's then try what else could be the case. And we put those into our model. And then we basically test how different features of dark matter could actually manifest in the galaxy distribution that we are predicting at the final day. And then we actually take our telescopes and do targeted measurements and see, do we actually find the signatures of these new dark matter properties? Um, and if not, then that actually tells us then maybe dark matter doesn't have this property or it has it in a very, very uh, tiny level. So you can kind of constrain things this way. So it's it's constantly sort of going back and forth between theory and data. Okay. So what are like the prospects of your current research, Ben? Do you find that like no matter what you throw at it, nothing seems to stick? Or are there sort of pro uh, promising sort of possibilities for dark matter? Yeah, I mean, so I I think, you know, there's, I, I think it would be unfair to say that nothing <laughs> seems to stick in the sense that, uh, as, as I was saying before, the, the models of dark matter that we we are kind of testing these days and the kinds of simulations we're producing 
um, end up producing virtual universes and, and making predictions that seem to be holding out against the data pretty well. So clearly we can't be going completely wrong um, because otherwise, uh, you know, our simulations would, would not look anything like like uh, the real universe or the real data. Um, so I think, but, but, but that's what makes it kind of a little bit challenging at the same time because we know that we can't change the properties of dark matter so significantly that the um, predictions that we've made so far that seem to work out well with the cosmos suddenly then break. Okay, because if we do that, then we've kind of like undone the work. Right. It's like, so why are we coming up with this new theory where we know that it doesn't work out in the first place? And so what that ends up doing is it sort of constrains and narrows down the sort of uh, parameter space of what other features the dark matter could have beyond the standard theory of dark matter, which is what we call cold dark matter, which is where the dark matter particle is mostly just you know, creating the effect of gravity and the particles seem to be, you know, pretty devoid of any kinds of, you know, motions and velocities in, in the early universe. And this cold dark matter model is, matter model is, is extremely uh, powerful and very predictive in nature in that we can make very definitive predictions and many of these tests have seemed to have worked out over the last couple of decades or so. So now people are trying variations of it, but in a way that doesn't actually break the successes of the cold dark matter model. And so that then pushes us to trying to identify features in um, the data that we have not yet been able to um, constrain very accurately in observations. So for example, by looking at the properties of the really faintest, tiniest galaxies, what are known as dwarf galaxies, or looking at uh, properties of galaxies in the very, very early universe, um, so just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, for example. These two regimes seem to be the places where different models of dark matter make the most different types of predictions um, in a way that hasn't been fully constrained away just yet. And so that's why things like uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is really very exciting, because James Webb um, is taking lots of amazing data off the early universe, basically this epoch that up until now has been studied only kind of, you know, with some relatively good data, but not with the, maybe the fidelity that is needed to be able to definitively prove apart one model of dark matter from the other. But that is actually something we expect to be able to do, hopefully in the next five to 10 years or so. So I think that that makes it very exciting that many of the things that people have essentially been saying that, oh, we will be able to pin this down and really say that this is what it is when James Webb or, you know, uh, new telescopes, um, other other kinds of telescopes and based on Earth and, and in space come online, we can actually finally be able to test those, those theories, I think. I guess that anticipation has been building up for some time. Huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially for JWST, I mean, um, I mean, I have, um, I have colleagues and, and friends who have been kind of involved in the project from for many years, and some of them actually started their PhDs maybe like ten years ago, wow. thinking that like you know next year I will be able to start working on the data from from this telescope. And obviously, it is only last year that the <laughs> telescope has uh, has gone up into space. But um, you know, I think with all the amazing data that's coming from it. And I think it's it's really been worth the wait. Um, and already I think there's lots of interesting stuff coming out from it that is 
um, you know, some people think might be uh, potentially uh, breaking our understanding of cosmology and galaxy yeah. formation. Um, others, including myself, are probably a little <laughs> less convinced by it. Um, but, you know, I think that's that's the exciting thing about these new projects that you, you never quite know what you're going to find. I think kind of going back to what we said at the beginning about the whole qualitative and quantitative stuff, like I'm, I don't really, I guess, appreciate fully the um, maybe qu more quantitative side of the JWST data. But mm -hmm. even like um, the stuff, the images that it's taken, like of the pillars of creation, you can see sort of so much more yeah. detail than in yeah. the old Hubble images, and it's really breathtaking to look at. Exactly, and you know, I think there's this there's you know I, I think James Webb sometimes gets painted as this like telescope that is predominantly looking at the very early universe and will therefore tell us about you know how the first galaxies formed and, and what dark matter is and so on but it's really taking so much amazing data at uh, more recent epochs um, and things that are closer to us and what that does is, as you were saying with the Pillars of Creation, for example, um, by revealing so much more detailed information about things that maybe we'd already seen with Hubble or other telescopes, what it does is that it can now enable us to like find out even more detailed aspects of the physical processes that are going on in these entities and you know how stars are being created in in these kinds of nebulae and you know what dust does to sort of change our perspective on, on what things look like and, and that's where uh, JWC is really powerful because it has this sort of infrared capability that is able to peer through dust which with Hubble we couldn't for example so there's lots to learn even about just galaxy formation as a as a, as a, as a concept beyond just the cosmological implications of things I find it quite uh, exciting to think about like, what sort of knowledge could be t I guess taken for granted in the future like we do now mm -hmm. with what we know um, I guess it's easier to get carried away, like, oh, yeah, we're going to learn so much crazy yeah. stuff from this. And yeah. maybe that's a bit, um, bit optimistic. But I think it's very exciting to speculate. Yeah, you, you never know, like, the stuff that we are kind of talking about as, you know, real big unknowns in um, our understanding of the cosmos and what it's made of and so on. Maybe a hundred years down the line will just be standard parts of yeah. high school science textbooks, right? And... Um, that's kind of the way it is sometimes. <laughs> yeah, if you could take like the quantum mechanics part of my A-level textbook for mm -hmm. like a couple hundred years, right. I some minds, it's quite funny, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, quantum mechanics, I think, is a good good example of that in that, you know, again, when you, if you go back to the earlier 20th century, there were uh, there was so much debate and, and controversy over the kind of uh, predictions of uh, quantum theory and its implications. And some of those philosophical aspects are, are still debated now, but, you know, at least quantum theory generally is such an everyday part of our lives through all the technology that we're using now to talk to one another, for example, or to record things and use on our computers and so on. It's sort of everywhere, really. But it's, you know, a subject that's just about 100, more than 100 years old, so... So going back to what we were talking about a bit earlier, um, with the um, you were talking about how the cold, uh, cold dark matter sort mm -hmm. of model. It seems that people are quite, I guess, um, attached to this model from mm -hmm. what you were saying. 
do you think that's like a i guess a sensible approach or do you think that maybe by i guess wanting to stick to this model that kind of fits a lot of the data do you think that maybe we're missing out on other potentially correct well air quotes correct <laughs> models for dark matter uh, that's a very good question actually and i think you know there's as with everything i think there's a, there's a yes and a no to that that response so i think there's a very good reason why people are attached to the cold dark matter model which is that you know people have proposed various alternatives to it and various ways to try and disprove maybe the predictions of the cold dark matter model but in general it seems to have held up pretty well um and when a when a theory is able to do that consistently um but at the same time is also able to make certain predictions which can then you know five ten years down the line be actually be found which we have done in 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 one or two cases uh, of the cold dark matter models uh, predictions then i think that speaks well to the testament of a theory um but i think you're also right in the sense that fixation upon something can give you a little bit of tunnel vision of course um I, and i would say that you know, th there is one big issue that I personally see so far with, with cold dark matter theory, um, which is not to do necessarily with the astrophysical side of what its predictions are or how well it compares with the observed universe, but rather just the fact that we haven't yet detected a cold dark matter particle. Um, and this is despite quite a lot of effort on behalf uh, on the part of the astronomy community and, and the particle physics community to try and detect something like this. So when cold dark matter was sort of first being studied and, and, and proposed in, in the 1970s and 80s and so on, um, there was a very specific type of cold dark matter particle um, that was uh, hypothesized as being the right thing to do, uh, the right thing to look for rather, which is a class of particles called uh, WIMPs, or weakly interacting massive particles. Um, and the reason why they became popular is because not only did uh, you manage to get a sort of prediction from an astrophysics perspective of, uh, you know, a re reasonably accurate um, representation of galaxies in, in the cosmos, but from the particle physics side of things, you could actually say that these particles have a specific property about them, something called the cross-section, um, which can be predicted directly from particle physics. And if you, if these particles have that cross-section, you actually predict an abundance of cold dark matter particles that is exactly equal to what we thought is the, or we think is the abundance of dark matter in the universe. Okay, so the particle physics motivation translates to the cosmological inference of dark matter. Uh, and how much dark matter we think there is in, in the cosmos. And so that's why this became a very popular uh, model and, and candidate to look for. And so if we think that this particle has this particular cross-section, which basically just means you know, how easily or how much of this dark matter there is, then we should be able to test this by actually building detectors um, that um, you know are somewhere under, underground so that we are devoid of interference from other particles uh, streaming through um, the atmosphere. Um, and then the idea is that when these particles of cold dark matter then stream in through the atmosphere and penetrate through the ground, 
which we think should be happening all the time. So there's particles of dark matter, we think, that is flying through our bodies right now as we speak, um, obviously without any noticeable interaction. Um, but these tanks are basically there to uh, have been built to try and detect these dark matter particles as they stream in through and then knock basically the atoms inside the fluids contained within these tanks, which are basically inert fluids like xenon and argon and so on. And they create these like jets and trajectories in this fluid, which we can then try and map to some kind of dark matter particle or particle interaction that has happened. So people have been building these really expensive experiments, really high precision, high quality experiments for a couple of decades now. And, you know, there have been tentative claims of, oh, we've seen something that we, um, you know, don't recognize as being uh, a particle from the standard model of particle physics, basically the, the typical particles that we, we know of that we can, that, that we can see. Um, but many of these claims have then kind of disappeared as saying that, okay, well, actually, it doesn't really turn out like that, that really happened. And, um, you know, there are other predictions that the cold dark matter model makes of how the particle might be observed in, in space, for example, through um, the production of what's known as gamma rays, um, because these particles tend to sort of annihilate as they meet one another when two dark matter particles hit one another, they basically annihilate into photons and the energy of these photons are basically in the energy range of gamma rays. And um, people have said that, oh, we've actually detected with uh, a telescope called the Fermi Space Telescope, actually, a gamma ray emission across the Milky Way that looks very much like the signal expected from cold dark matter particles when they annihilate. But then people obviously got very excited by this. And then it turns out that, you know, there could be other entities in in uh, in in the Milky Way, such as these types of stars called pulsars that generate very similar types of energy uh, signals. And so that's kind of like poured a bit of cold water on, on that particular thing. But so so this kind of thing has happened quite a lot. There, there have been these tentative claims of potential dark matter detection, which have then kind of gone away. Um, so I would say that fixating just on cold dark matter might result in the danger that we keep proceeding down the line to try and, you know, narrow down exactly what cross-section cold dark matter could have and what annihilation signal it could have. And maybe the dark matter is something completely different, which behaves like cold dark matter for all intents and purposes, but it might not be a WIMP-like particle. It might be a different type of cold dark matter, in which case we might not actually ever expect to see it in underground detectors or as gamma ray annihilation. And so that's where I think doing these theoretical calculations and stuff are really helpful to see what else the dark matter could be. Um, and therefore, when we have a, a reasonable alternative, then to say, okay, let's try and see if we can find any signatures of this model in observational uh, data, and then think about what might be the prospects for detecting the actual particle itself. So we're kind of covering all our bases and... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think you have to be because, you know, it is such a, I mean, it's it's called dark for a reason, right? I mean, we, we just have very little idea of what it, what it could be. And, you know, there's a whole community that is actually um, invested in this idea that dark matter isn't a particle at all, um, but rather that all, you know, the reason why dark matter was constructed, um, the dark matter idea came about in the first place is to try and explain uh, anomalies in the motions of stars around galaxies where people found that 
stars in the very exteriors of galaxies moved uh, at roughly the same speed as stars in the very centers of galaxies, whereas um, standard gravitational theory would say that you should slow down as you go further out from the center of the galaxy because there are fewer stars on the outskirts, and so the gravity should weaken. And so dark matter was introduced as this idea as the sort of external gravitational source that surrounds gravity, uh, that surrounds galaxies rather, that allows stars at all distances to move at roughly the same pace. So there's a whole community that actually says that, well, who says that it has to be another particle that is creating gravity? Maybe it's just that our laws of gravity are incorrect. Um, and so and there are some people who are in, invested in this idea that maybe um, the stuff that we are observing with these anomalous motions of stars and so on is, is nothing to do with a different or a new particle. It's just that Newton's laws of gravity or Einstein's laws of gravity are incomplete and that, that they need to be modified um, such that they kind of behave on different scales in, in different ways. And, you know, it is argued sometimes by... The, uh, so I don't personally subscribe to this idea because I think there's... Um, quite a lot of evidence, I think, pointing to the contrary um, in terms of how the particle dark matter idea seems to be a much more uh, solid, it seems to be on a much more solid footing. Um, but um, I think it's sometimes argued that maybe this modified gravity version of things is a more elegant solution. But, um, you know, personally to me, I don't see that as being any less radical as uh, than, say, just hypothesizing that there could be another particle in, in the cosmos. So, so yeah, it's a very wide open field, so there's lots to do, and that's kind of nice because it means that there's so much research still ahead of us and so many avenues to explore. Oh, particles or better gravity, I, uh, I wonder which one will be in the high school textbooks. Well, we'll see, we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think maybe it's, it's worth putting some uh, wages down with people to see 30 years from now. Uh, what becomes uh, the basis for what we find in our textbooks. I place a bet on every dark matter theory then. I can't lose. No, well, no, exactly. Um, but knowing the the cruel nature of uh, uh, of nature, I guess, it'll probably turn out to be none of <laughs> <laughs> the theories of dark matter and something probably completely different. Uh, I'm sure it'll be quite, uh, quite elegant in either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, maybe we should start to uh, wrap up then. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, Sarnak, do you have any kind of hopes for your research in the near future? Uh, I do, of course, yeah. I mean, uh, I think you are always kind of hopeful that, um, that you know, something really paradigm-shifting will happen in the next few years or so. And I think you know, probably every generation of astronomer or cosmologist has said this, but I, I really think that now, more so than never before, um, we're really moving into a really unprecedented epoch of discovery when it comes to uh, astronomy and cosmology and learning about the fundamentals of our existence. And that is due to two things, I think. Um, one being just the improvement of, our, of the sophistication of the technology that we're using to, to study these from a numerical perspective and do these very, very complex, large calculations. Um, but also, I think it's been simultaneously been met by um, an incredible increase in the technology that goes into building the telescopes that we're using to make observations. So we spoke about JWST, obviously, but there's several projects coming online in the next 
10, 15 years that will be both ground-based and space-based that will enable us to sort of peer into, um, you know, regimes of our universe that have been, um, you know, thus far been completely inaccessible to us. Um, and I think that will really provide us with an opportunity to study um, the cosmos at a level of detail um, that has been really unprecedented and will really be incredible for being able to understand this idea of dark matter and dark energy um, quite a lot better. Um, so um, I think I think that is a good enough reason uh, to be very optimistic, I think. I'm really kind of trying to think about what are new ways to test our theory. And as we've seen from things like LIGO and gravitational waves and so on, um, you know, it's just a different way of looking at the universe can reveal so much more information than we had previously and really unlock a completely new branch of study in, in some cases. Yeah, it's never any better time in the present, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So um, why would you say your, I guess, well, well, yeah, why would you say your research is like important to like, in a maybe a more sort of practical sense? Obviously, there's the kind of theoretical side, like furthering our understanding of the universe mm -hmm. and all that. But if, if like at all, do you think there's any more sort of practical reasons for research? Uh, practical reasons for research uh, generally, yes. I mean, so maybe specifically dark matter research. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's any practical applications you could ever use dark matter for <laughs> in that sense. Um, besides, I think just furthering, you know, human curiosity and understanding where we come from, which I think are as important questions as anything. Um, there's a few other things. I mean, of course, when you uh, do the kind of work that I do, for example, which is uh, very computationally oriented. There's a lot of data science and statistics and stuff involved in it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of transferable skills, really, that one picks up over the course of doing this kind of research in a PhD or in a graduate degree of some kind. And so quite a lot of people, of the students that we have trained in, in Durham, for example, have then gone on to uh, work in data science, for example, because the same kinds of skills can be applied there. So you're training the next generation of, um, you know, students to to a very broad range of careers. Um, the fact that we do, you know, heavy computational work um, is important because these supercomputers can be used for not just astronomy, but I mean, actually, over the course of the pandemic, there was um, a subset of students here who were doing uh, work with um, COVID researchers to like model uh, COVID viral transmission and, and, and so on and so forth using the Cosmos supercomputer that we have in, in Durham. Um, and, you know, the, the same supercomputers and same kinds of algorithms in some cases are used um, in things like climate modeling and in uh, things like, you know, understanding the hydrodynamics of Formula One cars and things like that. So I think there's, there's, there's lots of different um, aspects that surround why this kind of work is practical and, and useful, um, but specifically dark matter and galaxy formation and stuff like that, I would say it's it's mostly the intellectual um, uh, curiosity and the pursuit that I think is is the, the greatest uh, achievement that we can think of uh, as for society. I think it's always interesting when things end up having like uses um, that maybe they weren't initially as thought to have and then later on, you know, you find out actually this is useful because of X, Y, Z. It's like in many ways, I guess we can't really know how it is useful until we sort 
sort of investigate it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and you know, there's no better examples of it of this than say like how um, Maxwell's laws of electromagnetism um, have helped you know eventually develop the electronics that we have today. Uh, how Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity has been used to uh, make GPS navigation much more accurate in in Google Maps and and so on. How the development of finding a, a convenient way to share data at CERN, the particle physics laboratory, led to the eventual development of the World Wide Web, uh, for instance. Uh, so you never quite see, uh, maybe at the time, what the immediate uh, benefit to society will be, but further down the line, I think things become a lot more apparent. So um, never say never. Maybe there will be some useful dark matter at some point in the future. Yeah, we can, we'll see, I guess. Mm-hmm. So do you have any sort of closing remarks, any like websites you want to plug, anything like that? Uh, <laughs> uh, closing remarks, well, so I, I th so one of the things I would definitely say is that, um, you know, hearing about all of these things of equations and uh, computing and stuff like that can seem like a very daunting, um, you know, slightly overwhelming thing perhaps, which might make you think that, oh, this is maybe quite a hard subject to get into. And, you know, it's not to say that it's it's, it's easy necessarily, but um, I think astronomy is, is really a great subject because um, I really think it's a subject that is open to, to everyone. So, so when I was growing up, for example, I never really wanted to be a physicist or an astronomer or anything like that. My, my dream was always to be... Uh, the manager of Manchester United <laughs> uh, that didn't quite work out and you know I then wanted to study economics and and so on so like um, going into physics and astronomy was very much a sort of last minute thing for me so I was really never one of those people who was academically super brilliant or something like that it's just kind of like I eventually got interested in physics and that kind of drove everything afterwards so you know I think pursuing your your passion is probably the most important aspect to all of this and I think even if you feel like you might not be um, uh, ready for the mathematical burden of it all, I think you know just one's excitement for these things can help you get past a, a lot of these kind of stumbling blocks in in life generally. Um, in order to uh, maybe plug something, maybe one thing I can point your listeners to is a website that uh, several of us in, in Durham constructed a while ago. Um, actually, so when I was a PhD student here back in the day, so in, in 2016, Durham's astronomy group was invited to present uh, an exhibition at the Royal Society uh, Summer Science Festival uh, in London. And we built a number of outreach uh, tools and stuff like that, which is really one of the best parts of doing astronomy research, really, is being able to kind of showcase this stuff to the public. But we built a website for this, which is um, called galaxymakers.org. Uh, where you can go on and essentially do things like uh, simulate and create your own universe using online web apps. Uh, and you can change around things like dark matter and black holes and, and stars and you know what they, what they look like and how much there are of these things. And basically create virtual copies of universes on, on, on your browser. And then the app kind of then tells you like, you know, how uh, good your, your, you know, personal universe has been uh, compared to the real data and stuff like that. So it's, it's a cool application to try out. So if people are interested in learning more about this kind of thing, then I think that's a, a nice place to, to check it out. So www.galaxymakers.org. 
Excellent. Well, I'll be having my fingers crossed for your dark matter research on act. Yes. Uh, hopefully, it's all over the papers soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll see everyone listening next week. Thank you for listening. Bye.